Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Hey, I'm glad you're here today. We've got a lot of folks that we know of that, that are traveling uh, to and fro, and glad you decided to, to join us this morning. Um, we are, uh, we're going to talk about hope because today uh, we launch into a season, really, that's rooted in in hope. It's a celebration. It's a journey. It's a spiritual growth opportunity. Uh, It's an extended time uh, to meditate on the hope we have in Jesus. Hope that came into the world with His first coming and hope in His second coming. Um, It's the season of Advent. And, you know, I, I was kind of born into a Baptist family and roots and that kind of thing. And so Advent wasn't something we practiced, you know, growing up. This really wasn't something I engaged in with any real significance until about a decade ago, about 10 years ago. Uh, Really began seeking the Lord and and found this journey to really enhance my celebration of Christmas, of Christ's birth. And so I pray maybe if you've never really fully walked into the season of Advent where every day uh, maybe you're doing a devotional related to it. Maybe till de- this, this year you'll, you'll think about that. Um, because we, we need to be, you know, people filled with hope, especially in this run up until Christmas. The world needs to see that. And the scriptures are filled with this, this imagery of hope. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see this in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. It speaks to those who had been waiting uh, in darkness, waiting for, for, for hope. It had been a hope that had been present in the hearts of God's people really since back in uh, Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve when God uh, made the first prophetic word about the coming of hope of, of a Messiah. And hundreds of years later, uh, the prophet Isaiah, God spoke through him these words to people, to his people. Uh, Isaiah writes these words. He says, the people who walk in darkness, will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Even in the darkest of times, God's people have had a hope in a Savior, a hope in in one who would come. For those of us living today on the other side of the Old Testament in in the New Covenant, we've seen the fulfillment of that hope that Isaiah wrote about in times of darkness, but we live in a time of darkness still. And we have hope of the return of our king. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, speaks to this. Uh, it tells us that the disciples of Jesus were, were standing, looking up into heaven at his ascension. They, they had just watched Jesus disappear out of sight, uh, rising in, into heaven. And angels were present there that day. And they spoke these words to Christ's followers. They said, men of Galilee... Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you have seen him go. Now, as a follower of Jesus, we not only live in this hope, but we live out this hope, this this season of hope. And as, as we walk through Advent, one of the things that we'll do is each week we'll have a different theme, and we will light a candle com- commemorating that theme. And this week, we light the candle of hope. 
that the scriptures point us to, that we are, we are a people uh, uh, of hope. And we don't only live in that hope, we live out of that hope, and we live out that hope. And one of the ways, that's my friend Jordan saying amen. So just in case you hear Jordan giving me shout outs, it's cool. He's just saying amen. Uh, we, we had a conversation when he came in, and so he's going to amen a lot today, just so you know. So be cool about it, okay? You can join him if you feel a need to. Um, but we're, uh, we're, we're these people of hope, and we live this hope out, and one of the great opportunities that we want to give you to be people of hope outwardly will happen this weekend. It's something many of you have participated in before, but it's coming uh, again this Friday and Saturday. Um, it's Love Gave. And Love Gave is a giant yard give. It is a way that we bless our community in a partnership that we have with Oak Brook Elementary School. And uh, it, it's been a, a beautiful thing, a beautiful opportunity that we've had uh, in, in years gone by, and God's giving us this opportunity again. You can find more specific details on our website or on Realm uh, uh, about this. But what we do is we come together as a community and we try to bless families in need. And I'm told by our friends and, and those among us who minister up there and serve regularly that this, this year has probably been one of the greatest years of need that, that we've seen. Families are just desperate in need right now. And, um, and so we want, we want to help. And so you can go and serve, volunteer um, next Saturday, Friday evening, receiving things and organizing it for the distribution. Or you can be there Saturday morning to help with the distribution. A lot of hands are needed. Um, you can go online to register to do that. Or you can bring your you know, gently used items to give away uh, to the school on Friday after, late Friday afternoon and evening. And uh, there'll be folks there at Oak Brook Elementary School to, to receive uh, those items, organize them uh, for, for the next day. But this is a, a great way for us to, to step in and bless. Uh, some of you that have served in, in this way before know that there are many families who come, many parents who come, and use this event as a way to shop for their kids for Christmas. And uh, it's just a way that we can, can bless back. So I'd encourage you to, to participate in that opportunity to, to spread some hope uh, to some others. You also will have the opportunity to speak of the hope that you have in Jesus if God gives you that opportunity. And uh, so we, we won't discourage you from doing that. You would be encouraged you, you to, to do that. Um, I also pray that as part of this season of hope, you would be encouraged maybe to invite some of your friends to be a part of and, and share in our Christmas uh, series that we'll start, launch next week. We're going to do everything we can to, to be very relevant and Jesus-focused and uh, that the gospel will be communicated in, in, in ways that are, are deeply personal, I believe. But before we do that, I want us to dive into the passage that, that we're in today. And uh, we're continuing our, our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to finish chapter 5 today. So hold on to your seats because we, we may move quickly. Uh, we know that this is the message, uh, uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, that Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that I want to just remind us of and point us back to is something about the overall work of this, and it's relevant to this first week of Advent, and it's this. I believe that Jesus shows us that we put our hope in Jesus while simultaneously showing us that Jesus has hopes for us. Do you know that? That Jesus has hope for your life to flourish, to be vibrant and, and vital. Jesus has this hope 
for you. And the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most uh, incredible expressions of the hopes that Jesus has for his people to live until he returns to put all of creation right. And it's the way that his kingdom gets expressed on this planet now, where those who follow him, we're going to reign with him one day forever when he brings heaven down to earth and sets up his kingdom on a redeemed and and recreated earth. But until that day, Jesus has these incredible hopes for us, for our our, our lives, for for his people. And so much of that means that we would have to live counter-culturally, counter-culturally. And we look at one of the greatest expressions of this counter-cultural living today. Now, what we read in just a moment, we're going to start reading in verse 38 of chapter 5, if you want to open your Bibles there. This may be the easiest to understand of our study in the Sermon on the Mount so far, but the hardest to apply. Easiest to understand, hardest to apply. So if you've got your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading, begin reading in verse 38 as soon as I get there. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them also the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in the heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good. And he sends raid on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. That was a slam just for that day, just in case you don't know. And he goes on to say, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the teaching of Jesus to those who were following him that way. Now, many people read those verses, uh, read the Sermon on the Mount really as a whole, but especially these 11 verses, and they begin to think, ah, I got Jesus figured out now. What Jesus is doing here is he's raising the bar really super high, knowing that none of us are going to be able to get over it so that we'll all run to him for grace. And to that I would say, yes, Jesus pours out his grace on us. But he's not raising the bar just simply so you don't think you can get over it. Jesus actually is calling his people into his grace in such a way that we can follow him to live this kind of life in the kingdom. Now, that means we're going to have to surrender some of our rights as we think of them in order to, to do life in the kingdom. Now, if you, if you may be hearing those words that we read a moment ago for the very first time, especially in our world with all the political struggles and turmoils and power structures, you may be thinking, this Jesus dude's like off his rocker, isn't he? 
How could anybody in the world expect anybody to live that way? Does, does he just think we're to be doormats? You know, is this what we're supposed to do? What in the world is Jesus actually saying here? Well, here's what I believe Jesus is actually saying. And I'm putting it in a statement for you. Jesus is saying that allegiance to him actually transform both, transforms both our attitudes and our actions towards other people. That if you follow Jesus... If you're going to do life in his kingdom, you're going to find that your life will be more and more radically transformed as one living under the rule and reign of God in the here and now. Yesterday, I was thinking back to what seems like a thousand years ago, uh, back to the days when I used to help coach my son's t-ball team. And what kind of prompted that thought yesterday was my son, um, thank God they got to come down and visit for Thanksgiving, he and our daughter-in-law, and he was playing t-ball in the backyard with his nieces and nephews. And he was kind of coaching them and helping them. It just kind of took me back a little bit and reminded me how much I, I enjoyed coaching. Um, coaching those little guys, teaching them, you know, how to, how to swing a bat, you know, and just how much joy I, I got out of, you know, watching them actually play in a game. Now, the reason I had such incredible joy over watching them play in a game was because uh, they almost never did what we did in practice. Have you ever been to a t-ball game? You know, those little guys out there? You practice, and they, they get it right. You know, they run the bases in the right direction. Um, they, 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 they play their position. But when the game time comes... They don't run the bases in the right direction. You know, they start at third base first, you know, that kind of thing. Or they're chasing butterflies in the outfield. Or they're running into the stands to see, you know, Grammy and Papa or, or whatever. They're just, it's, it's nothing like the practice. And I just wondered as I was thinking about that, wonder, wonder how Jesus, you know, thinks about us. We show up here to practice. Jesus is teaching us how to swing the bat of life. You know, he, he, he's trying to help us be successful when, when, the, when the game comes. And we're cheering Jesus, you know. Yeah, Jesus, we're going we're gonna to get out there and we're going to do it. And then Monday comes. And the game's in, in, in play. And we just kind of go back to the way things were, chasing after something different. See, Jesus is going to press us on this today because Jesus isn't looking for admirers. Jesus isn't just looking for people that, you know, go along and think his teaching's pretty cool. Jesus is looking for apprentices to life. He's looking for disciples. That's why in one of my favorite rooms in our building in the atrium, that sunlit room when it's not raining outside, we've dedicated the, the main focal wall and it simply says over an image of the earth, it says this, we exist to make disciples who make disciples who change the world. Because that's, that's God's call, that's Jesus' plan. And that's what his hope is for, is that we would be disciples, living in, in the way of Jesus, from the heart of Jesus. And that's difficult. That, that's hard to follow sometimes. And as we've been trying to follow that over these last 10 weeks, um, we, one of the things I've done is try to point out out of the gate what Jesus is not saying here, 
before I dive into what I think he is saying. So I want to just do that again this week. Just kind of remove those from your thinking. Uh, first thing that I think that Jesus is, is not saying here is that you have to be a doormat. In fact, I think Jesus is actually saying just the opposite. He's calling us to great proactivity. He's not all, calling us to just lay there and take it. Jesus is not also in this teaching, teaching that you have to remain in an abusive relationship. That is not what Jesus is teaching about here. That's not what he's saying. I also don't believe that Jesus is saying you must become a political pacifist if you're going to follow him. Now, there are a lot of Christians who believe that this passage teaches that. I, I just don't happen to be one of them. But you can wrestle with that for yourself. I also don't believe that Jesus is teaching here that nations are not supposed to defend themselves against other attacking aggressive nations. And one of the last things that I'm convinced that Jesus is not saying here is that Christians are not to, you know, do anything to resist the evil in the world today. The Bible is clear. The church is called to be a prophetic voice that speaks up when things are going wrong, where people are being marginalized or dehumanized. We're, we're not called to be, uh, the church of Jesus is not called to be, you know, a passive observers. We're be called to be active participants bringing about renewal. So that's what I don't think is in there. I think Jesus is addressing something else. So what in the world is he saying? Well, let's dive into it. Verse 38, where we started. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said. Now, again, if you've been with us, you know that Jesus, this is Jesus' methodology of saying, here's what the Bible says. Okay, you've heard it, you've read it. Now, let me tell you what it means. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's actually quoted. I think it's about three or four times in the, in the Old Testament. And it was a law, if you would, that had grown up in, uh, in ancient cultures. Uh, it's a law of limited retaliation. It's just simply what it is. Um, and it means that you would only harm back somebody who had harmed you uh, in an equitable way. Okay? There, it, there was a stop to it. And in the Old Testament, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing was actually grace-filled. Because in the world in that day, people didn't normally live that way. They always won up the harm. And so it, in that day, what was kind of general uh, rules for living was if somebody, you know, poked out your eye, not only would you poke out their eye, you'd cut off their hand. It was that kind of elevation um, of, of vengeance in, in that day. People were doing that. And so Jesus here, when he's doing this teaching, isn't saying, uh, no to this idea of, you know, limited retaliation. Jesus is saying there's something more. There's an even better way to live. So he goes on in verse 39 and says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Don't, don't, don't resist them. And Jesus is leading up to this incredible interchange, if you would, with how we interact with people. Paul, in the book of Romans, in, in Romans chapter 12, echoes this teaching that Jesus has given. Look at verse, 30, uh, verse 19 of Romans chapter 12. Jesus, uh, Paul writes, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsting, giving something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
So what Jesus is teaching and what Paul is echoing here is what I want to give you is, I believe, the big idea for this passage, these, these words from Jesus. And it's simply this. In this world, you can either get even or you can have gospel influence, but you cannot have both. You can't live a life trying to get even and at the same time have great gospel influence. You, you, you can't do both. Now, I want you to think about how difficult these words must have fallen on the hearts of those that they were first given to, those who were in Roman occupation at the time under the boot of the Roman Empire. And, and then think about how hard these words are for us to live out. And we just need to go ahead and be honest and say, this, this is tough. This teaching feels radical in, in our world today. But I think if Jesus was, was kind of summarizing this, it, it would be you have to move beyond this kind of tit-for-tat in, interaction, you know. This, they, they do it to me, so I, I must do it to them. Jesus says, no. Life in my kingdom goes beyond this, you know, idea of retaliation, this getting even kind of thing. Jesus is saying, what if instead of that getting even, you stepped back, came to me, prayed first, began seeking what I would have you do, how I would want you to interact with that person that just wronged you? What, what could that look like to receive a word from Jesus in that moment? And friends, people in the first century church wrestled with this stuff. Some of the writings that we have from that day, they, they wrote about this. And here was one of the kind of the overarching themes was fear. They were afraid of, as they wrestled with this, they were afraid of, what would happen if I actually did this? What, what would my life be like if I actually turned the other cheek? If I actually went the, the extra mile? I love the way Dr. Dallas Willard writes uh, regarding Jesus' teaching here. He says this, he says, this world with all its evil, is a perfectly good and safe place for anyone to be, no matter the circumstances, if they have only placed their lives in the hands of Jesus and his Father. Friends, you know, if, if we're in the kingdom, we're free to live differently. We're free to, to go to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, what would you have me do in this situation? And so here's what Jesus does to help us get caught up in how can we live this way. He gives four examples. He gives four little vignettes, pictures, if you would, of, of how to live. Case studies, let's call them. Four, four case studies, and they're brilliant pictures of, of how this gets lived out. Look at the last half of verse 39. Jesus says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I remember in the early days of my walk with Jesus, I basically thought that what that was talking about was, okay, if somebody just walks up to you and hauls off and cold cocks you, that what you need to do is you need to turn around and say, give it your best shot on this side. You know, that, that was really kind of the way I read it. But friends, Jesus uses language that is so much deeper than that. His intent is, is, is so much richer than that. And so I want you to look at... at each word that he says here. He says if someone slaps you on your right cheek. If I were going to slap you on your right cheek, what hand would I use? 
The answer is left. I'd use my left hand to slap your right cheek. Okay? Now, that's important to understand in that culture because the left hand in that culture was considered to be the unclean hand. You didn't sign legal documents. You didn't greet people with your left hand. You didn't do anything like that because your left hand was the hand that you took care of other business with when you were cleaning yourself after certain, you know, human functions take place. Um, and so nobody used their left hand in that culture for anything. So for Jesus to say that you are, are slapped on your right cheek, what Jesus is saying is somebody has demeaned you. Somebody has severely, seriously insulted you. If you were to get slapped on your right cheek in that day, that was a cursing of you. And so Jesus is not, again, he's not saying, you know, you need to stay in this abusive relationship. He's not, he's not addressing that. He's addressing an insult, a tremendous insult. And so what's going on here is, you know, we, we, could, we could, there's usually one or two options most of us would, would think, maybe a third one, um, you know, if that happened, we could either, you know, run or kind of another natural response might be to slap back or for some more creatives out there, you may think, well, I'm going to slap and run, you know, um, I'm going to do that. But Jesus says there's a better way. There's a better way to think about living this out when you're being dishonored, when you're being demeaned, what you could do in order to point out the horror of this moment is you could look that person in the eye and say, okay, why don't you go ahead and, why don't, why don't you go ahead and treat me like a real man would and slap me on the right cheek or the left cheek? Go ahead. Do it. Face to face. Mano y mano. See, Jesus is talking about a courage here that is incredibly, incredibly deep. But what he's requiring of us is vulnerability. And so what Jesus is teaching us here, he's showing, he's showing us a better way to get even. I know you're saying, really? He's showing us a better way. And, and this is what I think Jesus is saying here. We get even better when vulnerability replaces revenge. We get better we get revenge better, if you would, when vulnerability replaces revenge. See, anytime we feel a need to defend ourselves, what always gets lost is influence. If you're at work, somebody has demeaned you in some way, and you're trying to figure out, how do I get back at them? Well, getting back at them will cause you to lose influence and credibility with others in, in your workplace. This need to get even will, will rob you of your influence. And Jesus is saying it's better to influence the people around you than to get even. It's better to win them over than to play this eye for an eye, tit for tat game. Jesus is saying you can look for better ways. You can refuse to participate in that back and forth hostility that's rampant in our world. Let me ask you a question. How effective is that in our world at, at, at bringing about human flourishing? When, when we play that game of, you know, you bomb me, I bomb you, you, you shoot me, I shoot you, you know, that, that eye for an eye, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't lead to flourishing of relationships and, and humanity. Jesus says there's a better way. 
He goes on in verse 40, second kind of case study. He says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him also have your cloak as well. Again, it's important to understand the context. Uh, in that day, the dress code was basically, especially for just uh, the, the common people, they had like a, uh, men didn't wear pants in that day for the most part. They wore this like kind of long robe that was like their shirt that served as their undershirt, their underwear in so many ways. Um, and then they had like a tunic or a cloak that would go over that. And that, that tunic or cloak would kind of serve as a pillow at night or, or a sleeping bag, a blanket at night to keep them warm. And those who lived in poverty, which most people did in that day that were probably on the hill with, with Jesus that day, if they were being taken to court and sued for their cloak or for their shirt, it was probably being done by somebody wealthy who could pay to, to get them run, you know, hauled into court. And Jesus says something radical here. He says, if somebody comes after your shirt, your night shirt kind of thing, give them your cloak too. Now, if, if they took your shirt and you gave them your cloak too, what, what would you then be? You would be naked. You would be utterly vulnerable. You would, you would be in, in great discomfort, if you would. And, and what Jesus is saying here, that if someone comes at you that way, you need to kind of move into an acceptance of this so that everybody sees what's being inflicted on you. So that you're actually pointing out this great injustice. You're, you're drawing attention to the horror of this moment. And what Jesus is teaching here, I believe, is this. If we're going to get even better, then we've got to move to thinking about our impact, replacing our comfort. You know, one of the realities in the world in which we live is we kind of try to set everything up for our comfort. But who actually changes the world? People who walk away from their comfort to pursue something better. People who, who make the greatest impact in our world are those who are willing to sacrifice comfort for something, for something better. Maybe it's, you're going to have to have a hard conversation. You're going to sacrifice comfort to get at, at truth. Maybe you've got to take a little bit of a financial risk. Maybe, maybe you're going to be called on to forgive instead of growing bitter. See, those who move for impact instead of comfort are the ones who change the world. I was, I was thinking this week uh, about uh, a, a, a new family in our church. Um, a new couple, uh, Calvin and Jan Mims. They're fairly new members here at River Bluff. And their daughter uh, and their son-in-law, and their, I think their grandchildren are seven and eight years old, um, just recently, um, they sacrificed the comfort of living here in the United States to go on the foreign mission field to the Middle East, to take the gospel, to make a difference. They, 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 they believe that global impact for Jesus matters more than, than their own comfort. And that's, that's what Jesus is teaching us here, is that our impact matters more than, than our comfort. What if we didn't allow things like anxiety and, and fear to rule us, but we were, we, were, we were set free to serve? Maybe serve in places like in our River Kids ministry or student ministry or as a greeter or, or just lots of other places going to serve at Love Gave this weekend, serving uh, others. 
You know, we, we might have a conversation, uh, a spiritual conversation, a faith conversation at work where, where, where we talk with a coworker or, or maybe a family member, where we're thinking that impact matters more than my comfort. Jesus says it, it, it matters. Case study number three, verse 41. Jesus says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And again, context is king here. And we've got to be captured by in the Roman Empire, there was a law on the books that a soldier could walk up to anyone in their occupied territories and tell kind of those oppressed people, I need you to carry, uh, I, I need you to carry my battle gear. I need you to carry, you know, my backpack. I, I need you to carry this. And you would be forced to do that. You'd be forced to walk one mile. Now, uh, imagine this. Uh, you're a Jewish family, and you've planned this really nice picnic by the lake, and there you are with your lamb kebabs and your hummus, and, you know, you're just enjoying the day by the lake. It's a nice family outing. And a soldier walks up to you and says, I need you to carry my baggage. I'm, I'm going this way. You need, I need you to come do this for a mile. Now, you, you, you've got to do it. By law, you, you, you've got to do it. And every, every single listener on the hill that day would have been connected to how deeply inconvenienced their life has been made by the Roman Empire. They knew how inconvenient life in this kingdom of the world could be. And, and now Jesus is saying, so you want me to not just you know, walk a mile and then throw their luggage down and say, why don't you go on home? You know, instead of doing that, that what you do is say, okay, um, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll carry it two miles. And what Jesus is trying to help us see is, what if we started seeing those people that we consider to be our enemies, in that case, those soldiers, what if we started seeing them as somebody else's sons and daughters? What if we started seeing them as somebody who actually bears the image of Jesus? Somebody who, who actually matters. Instead of dehumanizing them and thinking that, you know, they only exist to be against us, what if, what if followers of Jesus started having compassion on them instead of dehumanizing them or, or marginalizing them in our minds? What if we actually started looking at them the way God does? Not as an inconvenience, but as something else. And see, I think what Jesus is teaching us here is we get even better when compassion replaces inconvenience. Confession time. Not for you, for me. I know some of you just all of a sudden, oh my gosh. Um, the, uh, there have been days when I have thought, I, I wish I could share my calendar with Jesus so that he would see the blank places and move those people who come at me when it's inconvenient for me to those slots. And as I prayed and thought about that thought, the Holy Spirit said, I do have your calendar. And I am bringing those moments of inconvenience into your life purposefully because I need you to be transformed by this moment. I need you to, to, to come to a place where you will understand that people are not an inconvenience. They're a blessing. That, that, that people are part of my plan for you. And guess what? You too.
We're not to see one another as those as kind of inconvenience, but instead be people who, in moments like that, say, "I'll I'll go the extra mile. I'll extend compassion." Now, Jesus isn't saying that you you know you got to meet every human need that you see. You're incapable of doing that. None none of us can can do that. But what Jesus is pointing out is, in His kingdom, if you will live in His kingdom. There are better options. There are better ways to live, and this is one of them. And becoming compassionate surely beats growing bitter and just gritting your teeth to, to, you know, to get through with people and be done with them. So here's what we've seen in Jesus' kingdom of heaven, his teaching of what his hope for our lives can be is this, is that vulnerability might replace revenge, that impact should emplace our pursuit of comfort, that compassion can replace this idea of always being inconvenienced. Then last case study, verse 42. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And, and here Jesus, again, is using an illustration that would have connected with everybody on the hill that day and can connect with everybody here because we all, every one of us, have people in our lives from time to time that are needy, people that need something from us. And Jesus said, what if you looked at those people differently? Let me, let me ask this. Have you ever in, had an encounter with somebody who was coming to you and it was obviously that they needed something from you? Have you ever made up a story about how they got where they are in your head? Have you ever maybe, maybe had one of those thoughts that, you know, if they had made some decisions like I made five years ago, seven years ago, they wouldn't be in this mess now. Have you ever had that thought? Or maybe had that thought, well, why don't they just do like I do when I find myself in this situation? Pull myself up by my own bootstraps. You know, th- those kinds of thoughts. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Judgment. It calls it, it, calls it making a judgment. Against, against another person. And Jesus knew that we are so prone to do this. That's kind of our, our natural bent. That when somebody is needy, our minds go there quickly. And Jesus is saying here, don't judge. Don't come up with that story. Instead of judgment, move towards generosity. See, Jesus is saying, if we are to get even better... It only happened when generosity replaces judgment in our spirit. Again, it doesn't mean that you're going to give to everyone you see in need. It just means that your heart is going to shift so that instead of making up a story, you have generosity towards them. Jesus said, I'm calling you to step into this. It may be a gift that Jesus is calling us to give of food, or it may be a gift of an honest conversation. It may be a a gift of money. Who uh, who knows? But Jesus is saying in his kingdom, you're free. You're set free from this captivity of retaliation, this this captivity of, of, of thinking, you know, everybody's just out to get you, to begin thinking about what somebody else needs most. And that's freedom. That's freedom to live in the kingdom. And see, this is this is how the gospel transforms our attitudes, which in turn reshapes our actions. 
we actually start responding to people not based on how we've been treated by others, but how we've been treated by God, by God himself. Now, those, those four little case studies um, Jesus lays out lead us to where he, he goes next. He, he shifts gears here. And he's been saying, when your head and your heart start finding alignment here, instead of being consumed with revenge, you'll be free to love. You'll be free to think a little more creatively. You'll be free to take a deeper step into, into kingdom living. But again, Jesus isn't done. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Just FYI, um, a couple of places in the Old Testament, it does tell you to love your neighbor. Uh, I think about um, Leviticus 19, I think verse 18. It, very, very clear. tells you to love your neighbor. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it tell you to hate your enemy. So what Jesus has done here is Jesus has picked up an Old Testament teaching and he's kind of taking on some things that have been added to it so that people think it's Scripture. Have you ever heard that happen in our day? How many of you at one time in your life believed that the Bible said God helps those who help themselves? Ain't in there. But a lot of people think that's in the Bible. It's, it's not in there. Well, that, that's what Jesus is kind of taking on here. Somebody, people who had taken Scripture and attached their own thoughts to it. You know where that's rampant today? In politics. I, there are days I want to vomit when I watch some politicians hijack God's word and add their bent to it as if it's God's word. It's just ridiculous. Jesus is addressing that here. He, he's saying, you've, you've heard this said, it's wrong. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. People who study this tell us that the number one factor in determining whether or not you'll like somebody quickly is based on whether or not you think they like you. If you think they'll like you, you'll be more prone to like them, which kind of helps us understand why we most often surround ourselves with people who look like us and think like us and act like us. You know what's at the core of that? We like a little bit more of us. I mean, that's just what it's about. That's all. We just like more, some more of me, please. And, and Jesus is, is, is pushing back against that. You know, in, in fact, if, um, if, you, you know, if you found out that Mother Teresa didn't like you, what you would do is say, who's that woman? What's she ever done for anybody? You know, that, that's the, Jesus is saying no. Jesus is refusing that. And this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, if we want to get even better, we've got to refuse to let our tribal allegiance determine the extent of our love. We've got, we got to stop only loving those who look like us and think like us and, and act like us. We got, we got to love those outside of our own political party. See, Jesus, he's, he's coming and saying, as a follower of mine, you no longer get to choose who you'll love. You got to love whoever's in front of you, even if you perceive them to be an enemy. 
Now, the, the word that Jesus uses here in this passage of Scripture for love is, is he could have used several words, but he chose the word that was not squishy. You know, so it's, not, it's not this word where, you know, you love chocolate. Um, it's not that love. This is agape love. That's the word that Jesus has used here. And, and that, that word has to do with the best goodwill for the other person. Jesus chose this intentionally for that reason. So that we would understand that if we're going to agape somebody, you, you love them differently. And so Jesus goes on to make this point. He says, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I, I understand from the weather forecast that it's supposed to rain some more today. Sorry. Um, but I understand that. And what Jesus is saying here is, do an experiment. The next time it's raining in your neighborhood, walk out into the middle of your street and look down the road. And think about who lives there. And you'll think, well, those are good neighbors, and those are good neighbors, and those are good, and oh my gosh, not so good. Okay? We all have some of those, you know, not so goods probably, living in our neighborhoods. When it's raining, walk down to their yard and see if the rain isn't falling on their lawn too. And then when the rain goes away and the sun comes out and everything's bright and cheerful, see if the sun doesn't shine on their house too. Because it does. Theologians who study this call it God's common grace. See, God is so loving to everybody that he extends common grace to everyone. It, rain that, you know, replenishes everyone's soil, sun that rises on, on everyone. And what Jesus is saying here is, is when you live your life so you think you don't have to love those people or, or don't like those people, you're opposed to him. But when you choose to love those who don't look like you or act like you, and in fact, you perceive them to be your enemies, when you love those people, you never look more like your father. And what Jesus was saying here is it's kind of like in our day, we'd say he's just a chip off the old block. When you love like that, you're just a chip off the old block of God your father. That, that's who you are. Then Jesus closes this, this teaching with these words, starting in verse 46. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Friends, all of those were not uplifting statements. Those were contrasts that just point out the ridiculousness of the way people were living. And then Jesus says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you hear those words, and if your heart's anything like mine the first time, I kind of really heard them and thought about it, and I thought, well, that's not doable. Can't do that. But the word that Jesus used here that gets translated for perfect is the word teleos. And that word means complete. It means fulfilled. And when you're thinking about human development, another word that would fit that is matured. Fully matured complete in that. So what does the Bible tell us Christian maturity actually looks like? So one word kind of thing. It, it has nothing to do with how many Bible verses you can cite. 
It has nothing to do with, you know, what theological arguments you can defend or what apologetic questions, you know, you can answer or how many classes you've taken. According to Jesus, Christian maturity is measured by your love. By your love, which is what Jesus is teaching on here. Friends, the only way that we grow in this love is by growing in the knowledge of how much we are loved by God himself. The only way that you're going to live life in this kingdom of your beloved father is when you see how he lived. Our king, Jesus, when he was on trial and he was slapped, he turned the other cheek. Our king, Jesus, when they not only took his robe, but all of his garments, took everything he owned, had insults lobbed at him. He hung naked and vulnerable on a cross to declare how deep and how far he would go to forgive you, to show you how deep he loved you. Friends, that's not a king that just goes the extra mile. That king drug his cross to Calvary uphill for you and for me. And he gave generously. He gave of himself. He gave of his body. He gave of his blood. And while he was giving generously, he didn't judge. In fact, he asked his father not to. Don't do that, father. They don't know what they're doing. How many of you are glad Jesus doesn't judge that way, but has generosity and compassion on us? He doesn't look down at you and say, they got to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. That is not what Jesus does. He looks down with generous grace and love on his enemies. Do you know that God's word tells us that while he was dying on the cross, before his death even, and, and, and then as he goes to his death, he did it while you were still his enemies. He was doing that for you, displaying what it means to love your enemies, inviting you into that kind of life and me into that kind of life. He did that for us so that we could be known as the friends of God. And we have to let that kind of love sit on us if we want to love that way. Now, here's what I believe with my whole heart. I believe we're all going to be given opportunities to live this out this week. I'm not talking about love gave. I'm not talking about something planned. I'm talking about impromptu opportunities that the Holy Spirit's going to send. And here's what they're going to look like at first. At first, it's going to look like something that's meant to destroy you. But from God, it's meant to develop you. It's meant to transform you because that's what God wants to do. He wants to move us along. So I want to close with this thought because I think this is where Jesus has taken us. And it's this. We get even better when we see that opposition is our opportunity. That opposition is our opportunity when I'm wronged by somebody. When you're cut off in traffic this week, and you will be, 
when somebody jumps in front of you in line when you're Christmas shopping to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And you will be. When you're criticized for something you didn't do. That is an opportunity in the opposition. When you're taken advantage of, when you're not thanked, when you feel like somebody's just kind of run over you, that opposition is opportunity. When you're hated just because you follow Jesus, that opposition is opportunity. And maybe that opportunity will be to, to deliver a cool cup of water. Maybe that opportunity will come at, at Love Gave. I, I don't know. But it will only come, you will only see opposition as opportunity when your head and your heart are no longer consumed by hate, no longer consumed with thinking you're going to get even, but instead your head and your heart are sunk deeply into the hope that you have in Jesus alone and the hope that I have in Jesus alone. That hope that we have, that it has overcome the penalty of our sin, and, and it has overcome the power that sin has on us. And we will only know that hope as we grow in the knowledge of how deep we're loved. So that we will be free to love even our enemies. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we come in this moment. We come believing as we started out that you are our only hope. But Lord, as we looked at your word this morning, we have seen not only are you our only hope, but you have hopes for us as your people. Hopes that we can live a different way in your kingdom. Hopes that we will be a chip off the old block that we'll reflect you in the way that we love, that we will move from hearts that feel like we have to get even to hearts that know that there's a better way, a higher calling, a call to love because you first loved us. And so, Jesus, we come again this day having sat under your word of hope for us, having received it, and now saying to you, Holy Spirit, we, we invite you to show us the opposition clearly so that we can see it as opportunity this week because we want to step into your amazing grace and we want to dispense that grace and we want to pour out that hope on others. Jesus, we come again in this moment wanting to celebrate the hope that we have in you, knowing that because we hope in you, we have hope for tomorrow. We have hope for our drive home, to live differently, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil in your goodness that you've poured out on us through your sacrifice. So Jesus, we come to celebrate and worship you and the hope we have in you. It is in your name we pray. Amen.